Well, great to be with you. Let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, very special opportunity to kind of dig into your word and spend time together at it. We thank you for the technology that makes it possible for us to be connected, though not at church. And we, uh, we pray, please, you'd bring us back, that you would um, ease this, uh, this virus, its impact on our country. But Father, now as we dig into your word, we ask, please, that you'd help us have clear minds, be thoughtful. Uh, but please touch us deeply by the work of your spirit through this word that we might trust you more and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well we are living through an extraordinary time I mean the pandemic is one thing but another thing that's going on around it is this whole idea of conspiracy theories. I don't know if you've picked it up but um, there's all kinds of theories about governments and what they're doing and what they're not doing and what's going on behind the scenes and so on. And all of that kind of has feeding it, this sense that we no longer trust people. We've gone through this crisis of faith in people around us. Um, you know, uh, we, we don't trust the governments. We don't trust what they're saying and why they're doing what they're doing. We're sure there's some kind of agenda, there's some kind of power thing going on. We, we don't trust politicians, we don't trust mainstream media. Um, uh, it, it's certainly the case amongst young adults, adults and so on, that there's a massive decline in our readiness to believe what we're being told through the media because there's too many agendas driving it all. There's too many causes uh, and narratives going on. We don't trust old people. Uh, those people who are kind of in a previous generation, uh, you know, they've ruined things, they've brought all this... We, we want to make a new world, we don't trust where they've come from. Even scientists are going down, if you notice this. Back in my day, you put on a lab coat and say something and people believed you. You put on a lab coat now and most people are asking, where's the money coming from? Who's paying for your research? What's the agenda that's driving what you want to tell us? We have got a real crisis of faith, a crisis of who can you trust. And actually, I'll just uh, add to that crisis in a sense. Don't, don't trust people because they're into sustainable lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? Don't, don't trust people because they're into social justice causes, because you see influencers online or whatever who are spruiking their great compassion. Don't trust people just because they say they're into these things. It doesn't guarantee depth and integrity. I want to suggest though there is one place you can go to find a rock on which you can build your life. There's someone you can trust deeply and it's the God of the Bible. You know every book of the Bible is written to build that trust. Now I get it it's not easy for most of us that struggle is often within us uh, to find ourselves distrustful of everything anyone and God I'd suggest though that that problem's in us it's not in him that is there's something in us that doesn't want him to be trustworthy there's something in us that wants to find reasons why he can't be trusted because I'd suggest in part he comes to us to call us to bow the knee to him, to submit to him. We don't want that, so we want to find a reason. There is something going on in us in this to take care of. But the big thing in all of this is God is coming towards us, calling us back to himself. And he's saying constantly in the Bible, in the history of the Bible, he's saying constantly, you can trust me. Here's another piece of evidence that you can trust me. 
I'm powerful, holy, righteous and good. You can trust me. Life's meant to be lived under my authority. You need me. Don't buy the lie that I'm not trustworthy. This is God constantly coming to us in his grace and kindness. Now, this book, the book of Esther that we've been going through, and we're coming to our last night tonight. This is the last uh, time we'll spend in Esther for some time. Uh, this book, I mean, every book, but this book is written to push home this point that God is trustworthy. And the early readers, uh, and certainly the people who lived through the events that Esther records, but those early Jews who uh, heard of it very close to the time, they found it hugely helpful in their confidence in God. In fact, the whole thing, Esther chapter 9, if you've read through the book, you'll find much of the second half of Esther chapter 9, the, you know, almost the very end of the book, is about establishing a festival uh, you know, chapter 9, verse 18, 19, 20 and so on, all through there. A festival of thanksgiving and devotion to keep remembering the great deliverance that God established for them. That they might celebrate that they were once down and out. They were under, uh, under a, a command, an edict that was going to destroy them. But that whole thing was reversed by the hidden hand of God. And they, they got together every year to celebrate this extraordinary deliverance and this great reversal. And we're told actually by um, ancient Jewish writers that this, these events that Esther records for us and that celebration and the festival of their deliverance marked a massive shift in the way the Jews related to God and especially his word. They moved from believing in God because he did miracles to believing in God for who he was, the omnipotent God, which is a beautiful little word that just means omni, just complete, full, om, the, the potent God, the powerful God, the omnipotent, the all-powerful God. They came to believe he is the all-powerful God who works in all things. You know, we've heard uh, that this is a book without miracles. This is the everyday God being talked about here, the God of every moment. You know, the God of the miracle is a great God. But the everyday God, the God who works in every moment, is far more extraordinary. He's omnipotent. He, omnipotent. He's powerful. He's extraordinary. The whole way that God delivered them without miracles, in the midst of every circumstance, via the ordinary, shook them up, to put their trust again in this God. Now, all of this is, of course, meant to be a word to us, to strengthen our faith in Him. Um, you know, some things have changed from the time of Esther. A great deal of things have changed with the coming of Jesus. The people of God are now no longer ethnically founded. They're no longer defined by Jewishness. They're established... Uh, by the work of Jesus, to be people of all nations. All nations can now be in the people of God. You don't have to be born a Jew. You, you, what's necessary is that you come to Jesus, the true Jew, the true Israel. And by putting your faith in Jesus, you come to be part of this great people of God that he is delivering. Things have changed since the time of Esther. But... The God who worked this reversal and deliverance is the same God that we serve, that we trust. 
And that deliverance back then, in the time of Esther, is evidence of a greater deliverance where he will lift up all his people, the people of all nations, the people who are Christians, followers of Christ. He will lift them up and deliver them. And fundamental to the life with this God is that those who mourn, those who grieve, uh, th those who are um, oppressed will be lifted up in due course. You see, this book is our book and it's meant to strengthen our faith and our confidence in God, having seen what he did. And it's been doing that. Over the last bunch of weeks, I've been hearing lots of you saying how, well, again, just to not, how wonderful it's been, been to look through the book of Esther and Ruth before it. It's been a great encouragement. Except, we now come to the end of the book and there's one piece that threatens to undermine all of that. There's one piece that creates this niggling fear that the God of Esther may not be a God worthy of our trust. Why? Because of the brutality that emerges at the end of the book. If you've been going through this journey with us, you've found something of that, haven't you? It's all been awesome until you get to the end and you see how many hundreds and then thousands of people are killed. Let me take you through this quickly and show you this crisis of faith, if you like. Um, give a quick background of the story again. You've got, um, because of the pride of one man, Haman, uh, and the laziness of the king of Persia, a decree has been issued all the way back in chapter 4 to kill, destroy and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, children, and take all of their possessions. So this terrible decree caused great grief and mourning among the Jews, and it was a decree that couldn't be undone, as we heard in the reading tonight. Um, the decree of the king of Persia can't be undone. But through the efforts of a Jewish woman, Esther, and an old Jewish man, Mordecai, a new decree was put in place. Let's look at the chapter we're looking at tonight, chapter 8. You'll see it there in verse 11. Look at it with me. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nation or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now notice how it's almost, well, it is an exact reverse of the edict that was sitting in place through Haman to kill, annihilate, destroy all the Jews and their families and their, take their plunder. Well, this is a complete reverse of that. Now, this reversal didn't just happen, of course. It was the end of a set of astonishing coincidences, what you, we've been calling the just-so-happened moments, you know. Remember where Esther just so happened to be orphaned and adopted by Mordecai who had connections with the royal uh, leadership of the country who just so happened to put her into the bachelor house to win the favour of the king who just so happened to fall in love with her and make her his queen and Mordecai also just so happened to overhear a plot against the king and bring the news such that he was rescued from that plot but he just so happened to not get honoured at that moment when he should have been. Someone forgot it, just so happened. 
And it just so happened at the very centre of the book that the king couldn't sleep one night between two feasts that just so happened to be split in two. And so he couldn't sleep one night and he just so happened to read a book about Mordecai who had rescued him and hadn't been honoured. And so he determined to honour Mordecai. And in that process, found out how Haman was actually the, 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 the man who had, in his pride, caused all of this trouble and just so happened to be pleading with Queen Esther when the king walked in, seeing him look like he's assaulting his wife. And so Haman is removed and the authority of Haman is given to Mordecai. And so Mordecai is now given the power to actually make edicts in the country. It just so happened. All by the hidden hand of a powerful God. A reversal, a complete deliverance for the Jews, miraculously, and all of it without a miracle. Which shows a God who doesn't just step in at the big moments and is absent the rest, but he's the God of every moment, the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. But, this reversal comes with blood, and it's a lot of blood. Look now with me at chapter 9. Look at verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. You see the reversal. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And you come down into verse 5, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, aren't you feeling uncomfortable already? In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Verse 7, they also killed all the sons of Haman and they were hung up on poles. You then get down to verse 13, 12 and 13 and Esther actually asks the king for another day to kill more people. And you find yourself going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this the God, this doesn't sound like it's meant to make me trust him more but I'm getting uneasy and then you find there's another day of killing. And just in Susa, verse 16, we find they killed, seven, oh, throughout the empire, 75,000 were killed through this incident. And now modern 21st century people are finding themselves saying, what? <laughs> this is meant to be the event that strengthens my faith in this God? I'm not sure he's a God I want to serve. Now it astonishingly strengthened the faith of Israel, the Jews, who experienced all of this. They saw the hand of their God at work in reversing and bringing judgment and, and they found themselves strengthened in their walk. But for us, haven't you found yourself a little uneasy at this point? And this is where we're going to dig. And I'll tell you why we need to dig here. Because it matters that we trust this God. 
And if he is found to be untrustworthy, we are lost. And I want to encourage us to be careful as we review all of this, to, to not just sort of react quickly, knee-jerk, and say, oh, this looks terrible, this is wrong, it can't be good. Let's try and join the pieces together as they're meant to be joined to see what's really going on and see if it does help us. I want to suggest three things are deeply important to consider as we go through this. The first one is, and it's always, this is always the first one, wherever you are, this is the first one, remember the cross of Jesus. The God who gives us this book and records for us these numbers of deaths is the same God who gives his own life for us on the cross. So whatever's happening here, whatever questions it raises for us about God, remember he is the same God who loved us so much he gave his only son for us. He loved the world so much that he gave his own life as a ransom in our place. In the cross, we see with great clarity that the God of the Bible is a God of immense love, who doesn't stand at a distance and shoot at us, but enters into our world and suffers with us and pays the ultimate price for us. The great ruler of all things gives up his life for his servants. Remember that. In fact, whenever you're in doubt about the goodness of God, go back to the cross. He can't be but good. He has to be good. Look at the cross. There's the first thing. Let me give you the second one, though, and look at, look at the detail of the text. Um, notice first, or here, notice in this second piece that the response of the Jews was a defensive action against their enemies. It's repeated a number of times through here. Uh, and always watch out for repeated phrases. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you notice repetition, it's always a clue that something really is important here, something needs to be noticed. And you'll see there in verse uh, 11, chapter 8, verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. You see, to, to kill, destroy and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them. So this is a defensive action. Um, it's a defensive action against their enemies. You look there in verse 5 of chapter 9. Come over to verse 5 of chapter 9. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword. This is a repeated thing all the way through. Um, you have a look there in verse 5, the end of verse 5. Those who hated them. These weren't neutral bystanders, they were people who were hating the Jews. Verse 16, we're told that they get relief from their enemies. Uh, verse 16, they're assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. Verse 22, you get the same idea mentioned. The Jews got relief from their enemies. These are hardcore enemies because uh, chapter Chapter 9, verse 1, 2 and 3 tells you that a number of, uh, many of the other people uh, in the Persian Empire saw what was happening and how the tables were turning and they very happily joined in with to be on the Jews' side. 
People were swapping, wanting to get together with the Jews. The ones that were killed were the ones who wouldn't let anything stop their hatred. They were determined in their hostility towards the Jews. You see, this starts to flavour and help us see that this is not just a group of people um, running through the streets slaughtering. This is them protecting themselves from those with arms against them who hated them and were implacable in their hatred, were unstoppable in their hatred. There's the second thing, third thought and the last big one. What the Jews did, you'll notice, was different to the decree of Esther and Mordecai. You remember the decree of Esther and Mordecai? bringing about this great reversal chapter 8 verse 11 they had the right to assemble protect themselves to destroy kill and annihilate the armed men of any national province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies there are a number of features of what they are empowered to do uh, kill all and plunder all their goods but what they did we're told is quite different we're only told they killed the men. Repeatedly, we're told it was the men, the armed men, the attacking men, the enemies. And we're also told they took no plunder. Again, this is repeated for us. Look there in verses uh, 5 to 9, it spells out their efforts, um, uh, how, they, how they did all of this. But look at the end of verse 10 they did not lay their hands on the plunder like the edict said they should they didn't do it you get there in verse 14 and 15 they're given an extra day but verse 15 they did look at the end they did not lay their hands on the plunder like they were empowered to do verse 16 we're told again um, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews protected themselves and got relief from them. They killed them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, three times, that's striking. What is going on here? Especially because the decree had explicitly said, take the plunder. Why didn't they? This is big. So grab this piece. It indicates that the Jews saw themselves doing something very particular. They saw themselves doing what the very early Jews in their ancient history had done. They were acting against sin, not for their own gain and benefit. You see, this isn't the first time that Israel as a nation had uh, killed people in war. Very early on, when uh, Israel was brought out from under the slave oppressors of Egypt and brought into the promised land, they were told by God to take the lives of the people of Jericho and Ai and other cities there. But there was something very particular about those events as they came into the land. The, the, the killing was never a racial thing. It wasn't even a simple act of war. It wasn't ethnic. This, this is big. This, this is the really big thing. It was an expression of God's battle against sin and evil. 
You see, why did God command the destruction of certain peoples? Because of their sin. Now, how do we know that's the case? Because we're told it back in Genesis. Come to Genesis chapter 15. Generations before any of this happened. Come back to Genesis chapter 15. Look there at verse 16. So God is talking to Abram and uh, he actually tells him all that's going to happen in the future for him. Uh, Verse 16, in the fourth generation, having been served as slaves in Egypt, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, back to the land of Palestine, Israel, where Abraham was at that time. But notice this, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Wow. God will bring them back and he'll give explicit instructions as they come into the land, different to many other wars that had occurred. He'll give them explicit instruction as they come into the land, into Jericho and elsewhere, to actually kill people. But it won't be simply an act of ethnic cleansing or this kind of thing. It's it's because... Their sin has reached its full measure. God is using this nation to engage against human sin and evil. Now I know that even saying that, it can leave us still feeling a little uneasy, or a lot uneasy. And I'd offer that's because of the way we think about sin. If you think of sin as a small thing, a trivial thing, like eating chocolates when you're not meant to, um, or bumping into someone accidentally and then being hurt by it, if you think of sin as some kind of small, trivial thing, then to bring judgment of death against a sinner seems completely inappropriate, outrageous, primitive. But if we think like that, then just notice this, we will also balk against the idea of a final judgment against sin on Judgment Day. We'll find ourselves struggling with the whole notion of hell, which Jesus speaks more about than anyone else. We might find ourselves thinking, I get it that evil people need to be judged and frowned on for a while, but hell, death and judgment... Fundamental to the Bible is a view of humanity that is massively out of favour, dangerously out of favour in our culture, and calling it for what it is is important to recognise. Sin. So think with me, what do you think is the most horrible sin that you can think of? Um, In fact, just, I I don't know if you want to hit pause for a second, but um, make sure you come back, but hit pause for a second, grab a drink, if you're with someone, have a chat. What do you think is the most horrible sin in the world today? Now, we do have a sense that there's grades of sin. Some sins are worse than others. We have that sense, and that's not a bad thing. Let me give you an example here. I trust you're back with us now. Um, See, robbing a bank is wrong and deserves punishment. But raping a child and selling them into slavery is monstrous, yes? You see, one's wrong and deserves punishment. But the other is monstrous and deserves absolute condemnation. 
Am I, am I right? Yeah. What's noteworthy is this. There is, each of us has an instinct about what's horrible, what's the most horrible thing a person can do to another. And that instinct has changed over generations. So it is said today that high school students in America are more outraged by leaving rubbish at the beach than they are by someone who lies. So there's an instinct change where we think someone who leaves rubbish and pollutes ought to be punished with the full weight of the law, but someone who lies and breaks their oaths and so on, you know. Now what's changed? How has that changed? We have changed. Our moral compass and our instincts have changed. And I would just let that alert us to being cautious about being sure that our instincts about sin and God's judgment against us are right because our instincts are shifting. The Bible is consistent and unwavering that the greatest sin is offence against the Creator. The greatest sin is to betray God. Now notice I use the language of betray. The greatest sin is not simply breaking rules. I do think we have a tendency to imagine Christians are saying that, that if, if you slip up and break a few rules, you're going to hell. No, no, the Bible's not as, as, as superficial as that. God's justice is not that kind of pedantic and petty. It's far deeper. To offend God relationally, to betray him, to, to um, undermine him and his person is to sin against the one who has given us all things, everything, life, breath, and to sin against the one who is of infinite majesty and worth. This is not just bumping into a friend, this is bumping into the Lord God of the universe. You see, I'm trying to persuade you of the seriousness of sin, but I'm conscious that that's exactly the point we find most difficult. Why? Because our moral compass has shifted. And it has an inner desire that it does shift. Because we are, by nature, sinful. And so as sinners, pushing God out of our lives, we don't want to find that we're actually guilty before that God. And so we've got a vested interest in not being seen to be guilty. There's a whole lot going on in our world, in our lives. Throughout human history, God has been at war against human sin, wherever it's found. If you've got your Bible open there in Genesis 15, verse 16, notice it's in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God is not saying, I'm just jumping on them. He says, I'm waiting four generations. I'm waiting years to see if they turn around. And I'm only going to act when it comes to its full flower of the horror of sin. God is patient. He is slow in his actions. And interesting. The spirit of the sin of the Amorites actually finds its way all the way to the time of Esther in Haman, the Agagite, who was potentially a descendant of that whole people group. 
God's war is against human sin and evil. It's not just some ethnic group of people he's down on. And you know that's the case because when sin and evil find themselves rearing up in fullness amongst his own people, the Israelites, he turns on them and judges them. He is a just God. And wherever there is evil and sin, he will turn his righteous anger towards it because it pollutes and corrupts everything. The purity of who we are is destroyed. Without seeing these things, hearing of the death of so many as God's judgment against sin will never make sense to us until we see the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. Until we see the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God, we'll never make sense of the Old Testament, we'll never make sense of the New Testament, we'll never make sense of Jesus, we'll never make sense of the central event of history, the cross. Because the cross is the place where God finally conquers sin. You know, I was asked the other day by a friend, he was testing me, and I'm not sure that I passed with flying colours. He, he, um, he asked me a question, he said, what do you think is the greatest problem facing teenagers today? And again, I get you just to pause. What do you think is the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Um, now, I, I gave some thoughts, and they were pretty good thoughts, I thought, and I still think they're not too bad, these thoughts. But his response was, he said, look, I talked to an older Christian leader about this, and I asked him what he thought the greatest problem facing teenagers today is. And he said, he said, it's easy. I can tell you straight away what it is. And he said, the greatest problem facing teenagers sin and judgment he's exactly right the greatest horror in our world and the greatest threat to our lives is sin and the greatest thing we ought to be concerned about is God's righteous reaction to sin God is doing battle against it all of that which perverts and pollutes and corrupts his world that's in the human heart, every human heart. The cross is God doing battle with sin and making a way for sinners to be forgiven. Esther, you see, they didn't take the plunder. We're told three times. Why not? When Esther's command was to do just that, because I suggest they saw that what was happening in them acting against their enemies who had arms to fight against them, when they were acting against their enemies, they were doing just like Israel did when it came into the Promised Land. They were bringing God's justice against sinners, against those who would raise their arms up against God and His people. And so they didn't take the plunder like they were told not to take the plunder back in those early centuries. Because it wasn't about their benefit, it was about God's righteous reaction. You see, these events recorded for us in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are a great deliverance, a great reversal, celebrated every year by the Jews. And it established for them the trustworthiness of their God. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Every moment is His moment. But of course, this great deliverance only anticipates an even greater deliverance a greater reversal and the greater battle against sin, which you'll notice we've circled back to again, the cross of Christ. God has been at war against sin from the beginning, from its entry into the world. 
And though he's been patient and slow and warning us and weeping over his world and calling people back, when as God he has the right to simply destroy and judge, and will one day, we all will stand before him. But God, the God who is the God of love, works the greater deliverance of causing a child to be born into our world to a humble Jewish woman who is finding herself a great reversal, humbled, but brought to be wonderfully significant in God's purposes. And that child grows up without anything to make us aspire to him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and then went to a cross and died on a cross which looked like defeat and loss, an event of horror and darkness and grief. But it turns out, by the wonderful hand of God, to be the complete reverse of what it looked like. It was the day when God gained victory over sin and Satan and death. And three days later, he showed the world the great reversal with the resurrection of that crucified one, brought back to life again, body, into a new age, delivered. Death has been undone. You know, the Jews met every year to celebrate the great deliverance that they had during this period of time. We should be meeting every day to remind ourselves of the great deliverance that God has won for us in the death and then resurrection of Jesus. You know, they went from condemnation, a weight of death hanging over them, to freedom and confidence and security, and they celebrated. We've gone from condemnation under the judgment of God because of our sin, the judgment of a righteous God for our sin, to freedom, security, forgiveness, adoption as sons and daughters of this God. He's... he's brought out the great banquet he, he's put clothes on us that are rich he's taken us from paupers to kings and queens with him a great reversal we are now deeply loved children secure in his hands why because of the all-powerful all-loving God who loved us and gave himself for us delivered us you know we're finishing Esther tonight been a great book and I hope you've loved the journey there's been some extraordinarily timely lessons God's providence is amazing that we look at Esther at this time yeah there's been lots of uh, lessons the horror of pride Haman and what can happen when you're consumed with yourself we've had lessons about the importance of embracing who you are as God's person God's identity let that be something that shapes all you do Esther when she finally stood up We've seen the great reversal, uh, God turning things around by his power. And we've seen this, that God is at work in every moment. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing is out of his hands. He is working to deliver his people in all the moments of life. Not just the miraculous moments, but the it-just-so-happened moments. God's at work. He's got his loving hand on you and you know that's the case because of what he did during the time of Esther, what he did through the death and resurrection of Jesus, what he's done with the promises of God that say to us that he's at work in every moment of our lives. God is at work. He is someone we can trust. And even the peace that might feel like it threatens that trust, the death of so many, 
actually proves with more careful thought how deeply trustworthy he is because he does act justly he will condemn sin in sinful humanity but has made for us a way out pardon forgiveness reconciliation through his own blood shed for us acts chapter 20 that we might have this great reversal from being his enemies to becoming his friends and that only happens because of the omnipotent good gracious god who loved us and gave his son for us you know the greatest message that we can gain from the bible of every book of the bible and this one particularly is trust god trust him he is trustworthy if you haven't put your faith in him i'd urge you tonight to, to get on your knees and say lord i had no idea sin was so serious forgive me thank you for jesus's death and resurrection that i might be forgiven Please bring me into a relationship with yourself that I can now live with you as my rock, building my life upon you. Pray that prayer tonight. If you have, continue to warmly trust this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the, the numbers of ways you speak to us to remind us, to teach us that you are trustworthy. Please uh, humble us by the realisation of sin and how serious it is, by your just holiness against it. Please humble us. But please lift us up in that great reversal of knowing that you, the holy God, have acted on our behalf in the death of Jesus to make it so that condemned sinners can be adopted sons and daughters that we can now know security and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness with you help us therefore from that place of security trust you and we ask it in jesus name amen